Alright, this week we're going to start with a game. Uh, I want to see if you can tell the difference between what's real and what is fake. Now, most of us at one time or another uh, have seen some pretty nice things. Things like Rolexes, Louis Vuitton bags, diamonds big enough to see our own faces in the reflection. Uh, but are we familiar enough with these to know the difference just by looking at them? So first up, two different Louis Vuitton bags. Can you see which one is which? One is $25 in New York City up a creepy staircase in a shady back room. The other is a couple thousand dollars at Phipps. So what do you think? Can you tell? Look at the design. You'll see the fake one is disproportionate from side to side, whereas the other one is proportionate. Good job. All right, last one. Let's look at diamonds versus cubic zirconia. All right, so hopefully this game won't get anyone in trouble. <laughs> okay. Guys, take a look. Can you see a difference? And, and a diamond is a gray color. And the cubic zirconia is a lighter color. All right, so it's safe to say that the way we know whether something is real or fake is by the evidence, right? Knowing the standards set forth by the creator or craftsman will always point you to the real thing. Now today, Randy is answering the question, is Jesus the only way? So please give your attention to Randy Pope. All right, good morning to all. And for many of you, I know that uh, you've been here week to week. Some perhaps have come in later into the process. We're actually in week four of five weeks. I want to give you a quick review so you understand where we've come from and how you can kind of connect with us if you're coming in late. We spent our first week talking about life satisfaction and uh, how do you really find life satisfaction? Uh, is there really an answer in faith in Christianity that could make a a huge deal of difference. And then, well, would you want to investigate? Most people say yes. If any thought that Christianity could be the right answer, why not investigate to find it out? And that's what we're doing in these last four weeks is literally doing the investigation. I've always said I think there are four questions that are the lead questions to help anybody in an investigation. The first one is simply, how can we believe the Bible to be God's word without error as Christians? That seems to be far-fetched. Is it the case? Is it not? And so we simply laid out the issues related to that in an investigation. The second question that we have to ask, which is the one that we looked at last week, is really a very, very difficult, challenging, deep issue. And that is, well, how can it be that all people, including moral, religious people outside of Christianity, deserve to be eternally punished. You know, you could give a, a quick, simple answer to that. Oh, they deserve it, therefore, let's go with it. Uh, that's really not the way to approach it. The only way you can really approach it is going into some real depth. I mean, really deep. Confusing, even. Stretching, even to those who understand. And so it's not an easy, but it's an important step to kind of get the data at least in front of us. And that's what we tried to do this last week. In fact, we didn't make it all the way through because there's one other aspect of that question that relates so closely to it, and that is this. Uh, why is it that uh, good people uh, suffer so much? Why would God allow the suffering that we have in this world? And that's what we're going to pick up with as we, uh, as we start today, just to make sure we've completed from what we did last week. And then this week is designed particularly to deal with the question, 
How can Christians believe that Jesus is the one and only way to God? With all the religious leaders that have ever lived, why just Jesus? And to do that, we'll take a little bit of a look at uh, comparative religions, uh, to think about well, why not this religion, or how would I determine Christianity above other religions? So we'll be addressing that this morning. I want you to make sure that you know, too, that you can, uh, you can go online to perimeter.org slash ifanswers. If answers, and uh, the Tuesday after the event, we'll put up this week's. Uh, you can uh, go back if you've missed any of them and hear what's been said beforehand. Some of the questions we're putting more and more of the questions that you're putting through through uh, either texting or emails or whatever. We can't get to them all. We're getting a lot of questions, but we can answer them and put them online, and you'll see those coming up over time, over the next week. So know that that is available. Then. Uh, Next week we'll conclude and we'll be talking about if there is some merit to this Christian faith, what does Jesus say is required to have eternal life? Now, the issue today is, uh, is dealing with uh, the big question about Jesus the only way, but I've got to go back and I want to touch this very quickly about good people going through such horrendous pain. If God is in charge, if God is supposedly a good God, and God can do whatever God chooses to do, why? Help us understand it. We've given you last week's insert in part that's laying on top of your materials there where you came to be seated, and I'm going to invite you to, uh, to look at that with me. After dealing last week with why God would allow good people to experience eternal punishment, uh, you note that we walk through the issue of who are good people. And um, I'm going to readdress that just in brief because I covered this in such major part last week. But if you look at your materials, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Two questions have to be answered. The first question is this, who are good people? Are you familiar with Rabbi Kushner? Many would probably know the name at least of his very, very famous book, and the book is When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I've taken that book and I've summarized it into just a little paragraph of statement, just a few statements. This is in essence what he's saying in this book, and you can read it. I'll put it on the screen, in fact. Because man is good, and God is good, and bad things do happen to good people. Therefore, God is not involved in bad things, not only not allowing them, but not able to stop them from happening. That is one way you can deal with the issue of bad things happening to good people. If, unlike Christianity, you assume that there are good people in the term of outstanding, moral, worthy people, worthy of better than what we get, if that is the belief, which we tried to explain why Christianity does not hold that, Jesus certainly didn't hold it, David didn't hold to that, we walked through all those issues, that being the case, if you say, well, man, man is good and God is good, then the conclusion is God doesn't have anything to do with what happens to us. Maybe even can't stop what's happening to us. And that's the premise of which really he's coming from uh, in that book. So according to Jesus... No one is good, so there's a difference in the answer. We walked through that last week. Here's the second issue, and that is, what are bad things? 
what really are bad things. There's a statement that uh, is made by Johnny uh, Erickson Tata. Many of you might have heard of that, of this woman. Uh, she is a woman who was uh, a crippled uh, quadriplegic uh, from an accident as a teenager uh, whose life was rocked, and now here she sits in a chair the rest of her life. And she writes a book to address the issue of these bad things that happen in life. And uh, it's entitled, When God Weeps. It's an interesting book. And there is a summary, I think, of, of the statement of the entire book. In her little statement, when she said, God allows these bad things that he hates to accomplish what he loves. Now, that is the belief of Christianity. That God really does not only allow, he ordains the things that he actually hates, but for the reason to accomplish what he loves. Now, this is an investigation for you that are seeking the faith. You're just going to have to pick up the merit. This is the Christian's answer. And you've got to say, does that make sense to me? Is it enough to make me conclude that I could embrace this Christianity? Or is it going to be, hmm? Can't buy it. My job and my intention here is not to convince you that what I believe is correct. It's to give you the data of Christianity so that you can make the decision of what you think is correct. But you have to answer this question, what are those things that God loves so much? I have them in your notes, and you can see threefold. Number one, he loves exposing man's sin so as to make him seek God. I don't know if that's convincingly good or not. I love the way she writes in her book, When God Weeps. She says, the beauty of being exposed and empty is that God can then cover you like a surface that must be scrubbed clean before you can bond anything to it. The bonding of intimacy between God and us won't adhere until the film of dirt goes, the ambitions, the vanity, everything that sets itself up against others and God. Affliction is the grist mill where pride is reduced to powder, leaving our souls naked, bare, and bonded to Christ, and it feels beautiful. Keep in mind, this is a, this is a lady that's in a wheelchair, can't use her arms and legs, and she's been there a long time. And she believes it very deeply. Number two, he loves perfecting a person's inner being, keeping his heart where it is designed to be. There's a passage in James 1 in our, in our New Testament. And it says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result. Here's James teaching Christianity, for all, for all the years in the history of its church, hey, we can actually applaud the bad things that happen because it's accomplishing something good. This is how she writes in her book, Earth's pain keeps crushing our hopes, reminding us that this world can never satisfy, only heaven can. And every time we begin to nestle too comfortably on this planet, God cracks open the locks of the dam to allow an ice-cold splash of suffering to wake us up from our spiritual slumber. Suffering keeps swelling our feet so that earth's shoes won't fit. 
Suffering sandblasts us to the core, removing sin and impurities so that intimacy with Jesus is possible. It is the view of Christians that that is the case. Boy, suffering keeps our hearts where it needs to be. I've got a dear friend right now that, for all practical purposes, medically speaking, is dying. He's in a fourth stage of cancer, a very, very, very serious cancer. Maybe God might intervene and, and give him wholeness of life for years to come. Don't know. We were together just the other night. He says it repeatedly, as I've heard literally dozens and dozens and dozens of times through the history of my ministry, of people that are lying on their deathbed, people that are going through the worst pain and agony, and they say this, I hate what I'm going through, but I wouldn't trade it at all for what I've gained. And I say, how do you say that? What do you mean? I got a nearness to God I've never had before. Never in my life have I found the peace and comfort, the closeness of my God. Well, this is what the Bible has said. It's what it predicts would happen, that we can consider it joy. Why? Because of what it breeds in our life that counts most of all. You see, you've got to understand this, seeker. You've got to know this. The Christian is looking at this from the perspective that there is this long rope of what we'll call time. And if you could put a speck on that rope, that's the time we see ourselves here on this earth. And then we've got forever and ever and ever and ever to enjoy the gains of what we get from a very challenging, difficult time here. Which, by the way, important to always keep in mind from what we talked about last week, that the pain and suffering we do have is consequence for what we as a human race have done. Had we been a perfect people without ever sinning, there wouldn't be any pain or suffering at all. Uh, just like with our children, we say, kids, don't you do this. If you do, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. And, and we find them making choices that are bad choices. They live with consequences. But sometimes, don't we even see in a human perspective how those deep negative consequences come back to be some of the greatest things in life to teach us and help us? There's a third reason, and that is that he loves administering justice so that his righteousness is not compromised. You see, he could take away bad things, but he said, if you sin, you shall die. Death means not just the end of life, but it's talking about the pain and suffering that comes in the dying process from that very moment sin entered into human being. And so he says, hey, this is the way it is. If I took that away, if I just took it all away right now, I'm not administering the the truth that I have proclaimed that would happen. And so, again, uh, great text. I think I used it a week or two ago. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Hath he spoken, shall he not do it? Has he said it, shall he not make it good? So to wrap it up, here's the true rabbi, Jesus' perspective. This is what he would teach. Because man is not good, and God is good, bad things happen to people, not merely because they deserve them, though that is true, but better yet, because those who do or even will follow him need them, need that suffering. All right, so there's the answer, best answer that I can give you to represent Christianity's answer. So hopefully, at least now you've heard that, you can put it into the process. Does that, does that generate some hope of interest, or does it say, uh, this... This rules it out for sure. If that's the best you got, I think you're not going to find much better anywhere explaining 
in terms of what Christianity really does actually hold. So let's, uh, that's from last week. Let's move into this week. All right, you ready to go? Okay. I want to introduce this week's uh, considerations of investigating the question of, of um, Jesus, the only way to God. There's a verse in John 14, verse 6. Jesus is being quoted. We have every reason to believe historically the writing is accurate. Whether it's real or not in terms of the true faith, something we all have to decide. But I think we've found good merit in the historicity of the giving of the New Testament. Jesus is quoted as saying this, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, just in saying that, I know the most common negative response, perhaps to the whole of Christians in the Christian faith, is the intolerance of Christianity or of Christians. It's like, you are so, your way or no way. Well, keep in mind, this is not just man saying, hey, this is what I want to believe. No, it's what Jesus has said, and we're just saying this is the teaching of Jesus. That's why this week is so important to understand is Jesus who he claimed to be. But here I would like to say to any of us here who are thinking right now, Randy, if you hold to that, you are just flat out intolerant, and that is wrong. Now, I'll tell you what, I really don't have a temper. Uh, I've got one, but it's flared only a few times in my life. But I, mean, I just don't have a, a real you know, low threshold for temper. You know? I, I just, I don't know. But if you want to see me really get angry, here's what you tell me. You tell me that you think I'm intolerant. Now, I've had a few people say that to me. I'll be meeting over lunch, and I'll kind of bring up the whole idea of Jesus, the only way to God, and so forth. And he says, that's what's wrong with you folks. You're just so intolerant. I say, you think I'm intolerant? Well, if you believe that, you're intolerant. And my response to them will be something like this. Hey, look, you're welcome. You're welcome to call me stupid. You're welcome to call me wrong. Anytime, place. you will not see me at all disturbed over that. But one thing I will not accept is you do not call me intolerant. That's one thing I am not. And I use this illustration. I say, imagine that we're here having lunch. And while we're having lunch with each other, I decide to excuse myself to go to the restroom. I happen in this restaurant to have to go right by an open door that leads into the kitchen. And as I do, I hear your name, which is the person I'm talking to. I'll call him John. John, I hear your name being referred to by a cook. And so I hear your name, and I stop, and I listen. This person doesn't see me stopped and listening. And I hear him say to our waiter who's already waited on us, hey, you see that guy sitting at the table and points, John, right where you and I are sitting. You see that table right there? That fellow, John, hate him with all my life. I tell you, I'm, I'm going to kill him, and I'm going to do it today. And I listen to that, and I go, oh, my goodness, can this be real? And he pulls out a little vial of something, and he says, cyanide. I'm going to put it in some cookie batter. I'm going to make up some cookies, and when their meal is in, over, I want you to hand this over to this John, 
and, and just tell them that somebody here anonymously wants to give them a, a dessert. And just thank you for being who you are. Just something kind. Just say something kind, leave it. And when he takes the first bite of the first cookie, he'll be dead in seconds. I hear that, and I'm like, oh. And I say, John. So I immediately run back, and I sit down with you, and I go, John, I, man. I, I, and he says, what's wrong? Well, I don't, and I feel, I feel stupid. Maybe, maybe it can't be. Nobody's going to kill him. Maybe I'm, I don't know. Well, why even say anything? I, I'll just sound like I'm stupid. I just won't say anything because if nothing happens, no foul. But sure enough, about the time it would take for those cookies to be finished and our meal is finished, that waiter comes out and says the very thing he was instructed to say. Somebody wants to give you a gift of cookies, da-da-da, thank you for da-da-da, and leaves it. And I go, oh, no. And I say, John, 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 do not eat the cookies. And you say to me, John, why not? What's the problem? Well, well John, I, I, that cookie will kill you. Oh, you sugar idiots. I'm telling you, you're all the same, aren't you? Takes the cookie. I said, no, 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 no. Don't, don't eat it. Why? Be- because it's, it'll kill you. Because the, I, I just heard somebody, the, and I can't even hardly explain it. I said, but they put cyanide in there, and that thing will kill you if you eat it. Literally, it will kill you. And John, you laugh at me, and you say, oh, come on, Randy. And you take the cookie, and you start it towards your mouth. And then I always ask this, John, what should I do? Do you know I hear the same response every time? You know what they say. Hopefully, you grab my hand and take the cookie away. And then I say, and you tell me why that's not being intolerant. You see, in reality, John, It's not intolerant. If I believe something that I know that I don't think you know, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm a crazy person, but if I really believe that something's going to truthfully hurt you in the deepest of ways, then it's not intolerance that stops you. It's love that would risk and say, don't eat it. I care too much for you to take it. So I think it's important to get away with the from the idea that Christians are intolerant, I would rather you investigate and say, I think they're wrong. I, I really think they, they're, they're kind of slipping somewhere, but it's not really that they are intolerant. I, uh, I think this question of Jesus is a big one. I remember going to a man's uh, home uh, on, a, on a dire occasion. I got a phone call that day from a mutual friend from out of state and said, Randy, you have to help me. You have to help me. My, my dear friend in Atlanta from years and years of working with me is about to commit suicide. We've had this terrible fallout. He parted from my company. We were partners. He went into competition against me. His business is failing. His marriage is failing. Everything is failing. And, and he just called me and he said he's sitting on his living room floor with a pistol in his hand He's going to end his life in a minute or two, and he says, I just have to get things right with you. I can't, I can't leave this earth without saying I'm sorry, that it all happened. And he said, I begged him not to take his life. He could be dead right now, but I said, do me one favor before you ever pull a trigger. You call my friend in Atlanta. His name is Randy. He gave him my number. He said, Randy, he may be dead, but if he calls you, please be ready immediately. I said, of course I will. Sure enough, the phone rings in minutes. It's this guy. He says, didn't say he was suicidal. He said, I got some issues going on. And so-and-so, uh, Jim, uh, you know, said, well, I ought to get with you. And, 
you know, maybe we could get together. I said, hey, why don't I come by this, uh, this evening? I'll come by and see you this evening. I think it'd be good to get together. So I go to see him. Beautiful, huge home. This guy, I'm told by his partner, the most successful man in his industry, sells beyond any person in his industry, money beyond measure, had been given a gift by my friend as his partner to go see Francis Schaeffer. You won't know the name. The most intelligent, brilliant, scholarly Christian in the world, perhaps, in Switzerland and gave him a half day to meet with Dr. Schaefer. He did. He came back. My friend asked, asked this man, said, how was it with Dr. Schaefer? Oh, it was good. I like that old man. I think I helped him quite a bit. I think I helped him quite a bit. He said, Randy is the most intelligent, brilliant, antagonistic person to the Christian faith you will ever meet. Boy, I don't know how you'll ever help. All right. So I sit down with him. I meet him at his home. I sit down. I said, did you know I'm a preacher? He said, no. I'm a Christian preacher. No. I said, you still want to meet? I think he said no. <laughs> but he was willing. So we sit down together. We start talking. And I challenged him to investigate in the faith of Christianity. And he seemed to be very interested. And I said, there are four questions that we'd have to address, the same four we're addressing. I, the Bible, and he looked at his head and shook, no, no. And I said, you know, good people deserve eternal punishment. No, no, no. And then I said, thirdly, we'd have to investigate Jesus, whether he really is who he claimed to be. How could he be the only way? And when I said that, he took his hand on the table, and he slapped it, and he said, no, you will never ever, ever convince me that Jesus could be the way to God. I, he pointed to his coffee table and said, see those books? Those are Eastern religion books. I've traveled the world studying the religions of the world. You will never convince me that Jesus is who he claimed to be. I said, I'm not saying I will. He said, in fact, let's do it right now. You give me your reasons and we'll debate it right now. I said, well, actually, that's week number three. And I promise you, when I came to the door after week one, I literally, week two, came to the door, and he said, any way we can go ahead and hit that Jesus, the only way to God? I said, well, no, tonight's the Bible, God's Word, second week. And then the next week, a little bit, he said, you're not going to be willing to do Jesus the only way, are you? I said, no, that's next week. And when we got there next week, I said, now is your week. I'll complete that story at the end, all right? But here's what I told him when we sat there and he said, you give me your reasons why Jesus would be the Son of God. And these are the four reasons that I gave him. Number one, they're in your handout, so you can follow along. Number one, I simply explained for a minute or two uh, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies regarding who Jesus is. And uh, Jesus is proclaimed throughout 300 years of prophecies to be the Messiah. And there were clues given to know when the Messiah came. And again, 300 years prior. It, and it's known historically by the findings of these many writings of the Old Testament that preceded Jesus by this many years. 300 plus or minus 
prophecies to tell us that Jesus is the real Jesus, the Messiah. The birthplace, his birth family, how he would die. And by the way, when it describes the crucifixion in the Old Testament, there was no Roman government. There was no such thing as crucifixion as a means of death. But it's interesting that it was described as the way that this Messiah would die. And then his resurrection itself is prophesied. So just some reasons. Number two reason, and that's all I told my friend. I just told him that. Then I said number two reason, a life of working miracles. It's historically known through the history of Scripture and beyond in secular writings, even Flavius Josephus, which I quoted back what, two weeks ago, whenever. So you have historical writings too that are saying, oh no, look at all of the miracles. Uh, there's an interesting text in the Scripture where John the Baptist's disciples are, are talking to John, or actually they're talking to Jesus, and Jesus uh, says, they're asking about, hey, are you really the one? Because John, John the Baptist is in prison, and he's really wanting to know. He's, you know he assumes you are. Are you really the one or not? And you know what Jesus answers? He answers and he says, you can tell him yes. You tell them what you see. And he mentions the blind see, the lame they walk, leopards are healed, the, uh, the deaf can hear, and the dead are raised. Now, we can come up with the question, well, hey, there's a lot of mystery in miracles today. I mean, you can go to a show in Las Vegas and you can see incredible things happen. Uh, you know, there are, there are artists today that can pull tricks that are just unimaginable. Uh, we had an illusionist as a member of our church, one of the world's leading illusionists, and I got to be fairly good friends with him. And so I said, you know what, I'm curious to know, all these healers on television, they're healing people and you're seeing them fall and you're seeing incredible things happen and all this stuff. I said, you got any insight into that? And he laughed. He said, well, of course I do. He said, you know what most of these are doing, these big show healing shows? They're, they're using hypnosis. That's all they're doing. They're using what I use. It's hypnosis. He says it's a public hip, uh, hypnosis, and so not everyone is, but when you've got a mass of people, the majority get hypnotized, then you can do incredible things. And I said, give me an example. He said, oh, I stand on a stage in Las Vegas, and I can say, I'm going to take my hands, and when I throw my hands at you, you're going to feel a rush of wind. It's going to hit you so hard in the face, you're going to have to brace yourself. But I've got them under hypno hypnotic suggestion by that time. And not everyone will do it, but you'll see the whole mass. And when I do this, I'll throw my hands, and the first row will go back, and the second row, and the third row, and the fourth row, and they'll actually feel the wind. There's no wind there. I I've just got them under hypnotic suggestion. So the comeback is, well, maybe Jesus was just the great hypnotist. I would say there couldn't be a shade of chance that that would be it because of what he's done, the permanency of the change to begin with, but the type of things he would do, including raising the dead, historically identified as doing so. So you've got to take into account, all right, miracles. Thirdly, this is all I told my friend. Number three, this is the resurrection. You've got to look at the resurrection. What if I were to say to you, I'll call this man John, I said, John, what would you say if I were to tell you 
that I was the world's greatest basketball player. That no one has ever been as good as me. I could beat any NFL or NBA player right now without any effort whatsoever. Is there any way I could get you to believe me? At this time, you know, it was Michael Jordan was the great basketball player. I said, I could go one-on-one with Michael Jordan, beat him every time. Any way I can get you to believe that without you seeing me play basketball? He said, no way in the world. I said, well, there is a way. If I did this, if I were to say to you, I've got a loaded pistol here. I'm going to let you test fire it and reload it. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take it, I'm going to turn it on me, and I'm going to pull the trigger, and I'm going to fall down dead. And then I want you to call the coroner, and as long as it takes for the coroner to get here, and the ambulance and everything else, and the coroner to get here, and they pronounce me dead. And that very minute that they sign the death certificate, and the pen comes off the paper, you take your phone, and you just look at the time, and when three minutes to the exact three minutes happens, I stand up and start talking to you. Will you then believe me that I am the best basketball player in the world? And he goes, yeah. I said, of course you would. It's the argument from the greater to the lesser. And here was the thing. Jesus got challenged. You can't be who you claim to be. You're not the Messiah. And he says, "Uh uh-huh, here's how. You watch. I'll die, and in three days, I'll rise up. So I suggest that the, of all issues to look at and investigate if you're a seeker is, did he rise or did he not? That's really the issue. Flavius Josephus, I quoted him back a couple of weeks ago. Very important to understand it. Here is a historian who is not even a follower of Jesus who writes and says, hmm, it happened. Doesn't mean it did, but it's worth looking at. Fourth and final reason I told my friend. I said, it's the legacy of changed lives. My life, how do you explain the change that took place in my life? And I gave him my story. But I said, it's not just my life. I mean, it's across every age group and culture and, and uh, country and socioeconomic group. People are saying, this happened to me X years ago. It's the greatest change that ever took place in my life. I've had the privilege for years and years now. I'm in the ministry not because I ever wanted to be a preacher, but because I love seeing people's lives change. And it seemed to be the right avenue to come into My great joy is meeting with people. For now, 50 years, I've met with people. Lunch after lunch after lunch, and seeing one person after the other, who now years and years and years later will tell me, the greatest thing that ever happened in my life was when you shared the truth that you shared with me. My life has never been the same. That does not mean it's real, but it gives you reason to say, maybe there is something to it. So a legacy of changed life. Let me close that point and all four of these points with a, a statement from a man, Kenneth Latterett. He is a noted former uh, historian of Yale University, very bright individual, noted author. And this is what he writes. He says, through him, Jesus, movements have been set in motion which have made society for what mankind believes to be the best the inward transformation in human lives, in political order, in the production and distribution of goods to meet the physical needs of men, in healing physical ills, in the relations between races and between nations, in art, in religion, in the achievements of the human intellect. 
gauged by the consequences which have followed the birth, life, and resurrection of Jesus, have been the most important events in the history of man. Measured by his influence, Jesus is central in the human story. So I'll close this whole thing out by simply finishing the story of my friend that I'm calling John. So I shared those four reasons. And when I finished sharing the four reasons, I said, your call, your time now. You, you, you say anything, you take as much time as you want, and you tell me why Jesus is not the Son of God. You know, he stared at me for a long 20 seconds. And he shook his head and he says, I don't understand why, but I believe. Really? He said, I do. Do you know why he believed? I find out, and I knew why. It's because I'd ask him to do something that I ask you to do. So anybody who's serious about saying, if there is a real Jesus, if he's who he claimed to be, I want to find out. I hope you're doing what I ask you to do, and he did. I said, I want you to read a little bit of the Gospel of John every single day. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. And after four weeks of reading a little bit of John, and he did every day, Something happened in his heart. Faith was born. That's the Christian's belief of what happened to him. And I'll say this. This man's life turned radically around. He ended up becoming a member of our church. And without not too much time, he went back to Virginia to go back into partnership with his original partner. That he originally had. I'll bet you anything you could go talk to him today. And he would say, the greatest thing that ever happened to me was when I investigated Jesus. So you see, I just want you to know, we think there really is a God. And if Christianity is real, this is not just your intellect. I'll prove it to myself. That's not it. There's got to be a birth of faith in the heart. That's the belief of Christianity. And that's why if you think it may be real, and that's why an investigation like this helps, is a great motivation to say, I'm just going to start reading the gospel a little bit every day and say, God, if you're real, show yourself. If you're real, show yourself. If he doesn't show himself, then for you it shouldn't be real. If you do, you'll know. All right? So that's that issue. Let's hit the uh, questions in John really quickly here. And, uh, and then we're going to uh, open the floor for another time of, of Q&A. So if you take your, your Gospel of John, I'm not going to hit them all. I'm going to do it very, very, very quickly here. So we got our time to, to, uh, to do Q&A. Uh, we're on chapters 11 through 15. Uh, these are found on page 26 through 36 of your Gospel of John, if you're using it. And uh, question number 19 was, uh, and 20 kind of go together. What did Jesus mean when he said, I am the resurrection? And number 20 was, what does, Je does Christ being the resurrection mean for those who believe? And I just went through that. It's basically, if he rose, then he can do anything he promises. If he says, I'll give you peace and fulfillment and satisfaction in life, then you shouldn't say he can't do it. Well, if he can rise from the dead, he can do anything. If he did rise from the dead, it shows he's God, and you should believe that God is going to be truthful. So, the importance of the resurrection. Number 21, what is the one condition Jesus gives for finding life? What does he mean by this? And what he says, and it can be very confusing to the new Bible reader, he says you must hate your life in order to find life. When he says that, 
It is a term in the Greek, it is a comparative term. Hate in comparison to. Meaning that you no longer put your life forward as the one reason you do what you do. But now, you hate that, that way. You go to a different way. This is what you love. I really now want to find myself, even if I resist it, I know this is where I really want to go, and that's doing what God would have me to do. That's why we become followers at that time. You're not a real follower unless you what? Follow, remember? Followers, follow. The next one, 22, what does Jesus say is true of the person who serves him? And it's you must follow. I can't say that enough. Please don't believe in Christianity if you're looking at people who say they're followers, but they just don't follow. That's not the Christianity you want to look at. We're all, all flawed. I fail every day. Every one of us as Christians, we fail. But there is an intention of heart to say, it is my intention to follow. That's a real follower. We fail, but it's our intention. Well, people say, I don't intend to follow. I don't intend to follow. Well, they're not followers at that point, all right? Number 23, we already covered that one. Is there any other way? Uh, in Jesus' view, is there any other way than believing and following him in order for a person to find God? And his view was no. That's the verse I quoted, John 14, 6. Number 24, how does uh, Jesus describe his relationship with the Father? And he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's identifying himself as God at that point. Number 25, what does Jesus Christ promise to those who will ask anything that honors him? Now, this is a confusing one. Because if you read the text, you remember that it says that he will actually do whatever we ask if it honors him. Well, I've had people when I'm meeting over lunch who'll stop me and be honest and say, it's, it's verses like this that cause me not to believe in Christianity. And I say, what do you mean? Well, here it says, if you, then he will, and, and then he tells me his story. I've heard this story that, well, I was 10 years old, 12 years old. My mother was dying of cancer. I couldn't stand it. It was killing me, watching my mother die. And then... Preacher comes over, and he shows me in the Bible. I can tell you the verse, Matthew 7. Verse 7, whatsoever you ask, believing, you shall receive. And you know what? I started believing. And I got so convinced I was giddy. I was so excited because I now knew my mother was going to be fine. And I'm asking God, and I'm just so convinced. I mean, I don't have any doubt. And then just like that, my mother dies. I said, oh, yeah, ask whatever you ask. I know I was believing, and he didn't do it. I said, I know this is unfortunate because I don't think you really understand what this is saying. You see, you know what a collage is. A collage is a big, big, big picture with a lot of little, little, little pictures in it that make the bigger picture, right? There are about 16 promises that are conditioned, or that promises of answered prayer that have a condition, different condition. You got to pray according to God's will. You pray in order to honor Him, like this one. You pray believing and so forth. But all of these conditions. And so we take the, the little piece and we pull it out, and it makes a different picture than is intended. It should make the bigger picture. Here's the way I would illustrate Imagine that you've got a, a son or daughter in, in a, a coach pitch baseball for the very first time. They're no longer hitting off the tee. They're now going to be pitching it. 
And so your child gets up to bat. And uh, first time ever to bat, so excited. And you as the parent are sitting right behind. And so the child is looking at the coach getting ready to pitch. And about the time of the pitch, the child looks back at you and grins real big like, look at me, mom. Look at me, dad. And about the time looking back, strike one. And the little kid looks at you and says, like, how could that happen? Said, son, daughter, keep your eye on the ball and you'll hit it. Is that a true statement? Hmm, I don't know. So? I said, okay, I believe you. <gasps> Strike two. Looks up at you and says, what? And you said if I keep my eye on the ball and I kept my eye I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is, assuming you do all other things correctly, if you do this, you'll hit the ball. That's what all this is teaching. That's why Christians will tell you prayer is a hard work. It's understanding and putting together and bringing these to bear in our prayer life. It's not a simple whatever I ask I get. It was never intended to be. So you really need to understand and put that into perspective. Then number 26, what is true of those who truly love Christ? Hmm, they follow, they obey. The last question is, what does Jesus mean when he says he will leave a helper? And that's the Holy Spirit, one person of the Trinity. And he says, when you really become a Christian, something very mystical happens. This is what I'll be describing next week. Something mystical happens, and according to what God has to say in the Scripture, if real, is that he sins his spirit to dwell us, and that's where the life changes. That's going to be next week, all right? But just so you understand, that's the Holy Spirit, okay? I think that uh, completes the uh, stuff, and it's right on the minute, 1130, when we open it up to questions. So we've got, we got 30 minutes to, uh, to ask a question. I'm going to just repeat it one more time. If you are an attender, regular attender at this church, you're not a seeker, uh, in terms of seeking to understand Christianity, that you, in other words, you're not a Christian, but you're just considering it. Other than you, you're not to ask a question, okay? You are not. If I know that you're not, I have the right without being, you know, thought bad of to humiliate you, okay? I get to publicly humiliate you if I see one of our members asking a question. This is for our guests, all right? And I'm going to start again this week. I'm going to start from the floor. And if we don't have any, we've got plenty of them. Again, I have not seen these questions, so I'm just taking them just as if they came from the floor. So uh, we'll find out where they, uh, where they go. And I'll, I have the right to say I don't know to any questions, so uh, there's no problem there. All right, so who has a question you'd like to, to ask? Anybody from the floor? We'll, we'll grab you a question real quick. All right, right here. Let's get a, a microphone. All right, here come. And I'd uh, love to start here. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, some people say uh, I'm a Christian. Uh, some people say I'm a Christian fundamentalist. Some say I'm a Christian evangelical. Is there a difference? Yeah, what do they mean when they talk about that? You know, they're, they're probably all just saying uh, different terms to try to say, I really am a Christian. Because there's so many people who say, oh, I'm a Christian, meaning I'm not a Buddhist, uh, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Muslim, I'm a Christian. And by the way, that's not just true of our country, it's true. I've been in Iraq and Iran and all around the world 
where people say, I'm Muslim. And I go, well, let me ask you, when I get in a relationship where I can say this, I'll say, hey, you being a Muslim, doesn't that make me an infidel? And they go, well, yeah. I say, well, why are you being nice to me? Why are you not trying to kill me? Uh, I don't, I mean, that's, that's the real, I mean, those, those guys are really into religion. I'm not, I'm just kind of, what they're saying is, I'm not a real one. I'm kind of, uh, you know, culturally, I'm a Muslim. That's what they might be saying at that point. Well, same thing with Christianity. We have the same thing. People say, oh, I'm a Christian, and, well, you don't follow Jesus. No, I don't follow, but I'm a, I'm a Christian. So these are people who are setting themselves apart, saying, hey, I'm fundamentalist, meaning I really believe what the scriptures say. Now that term's got those people that are legalistic and all, they've got all kind of thoughts about that. But what they're really trying to say is, I'm evangelical, I believe the Bible, I really am a true Christian, I'm born again. It's just different ways of saying, I'm not just a cultural Christian. That would be my guess. Good. All right, let's flip it and we'll go to the screen now. Take one from here. Jewish uh, friends of mine say, I violate the commandments of Moses by idolizing the man of Jesus. How do I respond? Well, that's a good question. Um, because the Jewish people, so you'll understand, the Jewish people believe in a Messiah. You got that? They, they do believe there's a Messiah to come. That Messiah has not come yet. And so they think that Jesus was a great prophet. And by the way, I've talked to many Muslim people. I've talked to people of all different... You always hear people of all religions holding Jesus in a very high regard. It's not that they say he's a terrible... No, they say, oh, he's... In fact, most say he is a great prophet. But Judaism knows that you serve and bow down to only one God. They're monotheistic, and that's very good. The Christian is monotheistic. Here's the difference. They don't believe that Jesus was God, that he was Messiah. Now, that's got to raise another question, if you don't mind me addressing, and that is, well, why would you, all these, I mean, there are, there are millions and millions of Jews through history that have said, we're not buying that Jesus is Messiah. There's got to be a reason why. Why would they reject Jesus from being Messiah? Well, I find it very interesting when I'm talking to Jewish people to ask that question. In fact, I'll raise it to them. I'll say, let me ask you a question. You're Jewish, right? Yeah, do you... You hold to your Jewish belief? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, then don't you believe that there is a Messiah that is to come? And they say, yeah, there's a Messiah that's to come. And I say, okay, let me ask you this question. Don't you believe he's going to be Jewish? Yeah. Don't you believe he's going to do incredible works? Yes. I said, well, then I'm just curious to know this. Why do you not believe that Jesus meets the description of Messiah? Now, I don't know how many Jewish people I've talked to over my life, but I've only had one ever to give me an answer other than this. I don't know. That's just what my people believe. I was here. I don't know. That's just what my people believe. And my response to them is to say, hey, you know, you need to know this, that there are a lot of your people today that are calling themselves Messianic Jews, completed Jews, because they're believing Jesus is the Messiah. So I wouldn't say that you, all of your people. But don't you want to have a better reason than just that's what they say? Wouldn't you want to investigate and find out if he is or if he's not? The one that I talked to that was, they had a really good answer. Here's what they said. They said, the reason that I cannot believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, is because the lion 
and the lamb do not sleep together yet. Meaning there's not world peace. And I immediately said, ah, you're talking about Isaiah's prophecy that, that when Messiah came that there would be peace on this earth. And there is no peace as we know that. So I said, here's where we're probably going to agree to disagree. I hope we'll agree if we disagree that we can say this. The reason is because, and I put these two mountain peaks. I say, here are these two mountains. I said, the difference is, is that the Jewish people believe that there is one mountain, and when Jesus, or I'll say Messiah, comes, when Messiah comes, the lion and the lamb are going to sleep together. There'll be world peace. The difference is, we as Christians believe there are two peaks, and that it's only the second one where there's going to be the lion and the lamb sleeping together. The first one, we believe, has happened. That's when Jesus did come to earth. But not to bring peace at this moment, but to yet again come another time, and at that point, then there will be the world peace. So that's the difference, and if you did believe there's only to be one coming for some reason, then you might not be able to believe that Jesus was the one. Uh, but if you can believe, as I do, that there are two comings, and that's what's prophesied, as I see in the Old Testament, which is your scriptures, I said, that's why I would believe that you ought to look into this, because he might well be the one, and we could have missed him. So, important question to ask. Very good. All right, let's go back to the floor. All right, we got one right here. All right. Hi, my name is Cash. I want to ask a, a question, since uh, we believe that the God is the most powerful and he has uh, been resurrected. I wanted to know, since he created the whole creature, why and how, why he, did he let all those uh, people to put him on the cross and torture him? And he has to set that example. And the uh, second part of the question I want to ask is... Let me hit that one first, then I'll take your second half. All right, hold on the microphone, because I, I want you to ask the second half. But let, let me hit that one first. Why would Jesus allow himself to go through what he went through, torture, death, and so forth? And the answer is given in Scripture himself. It was actually for the love of his people, the people that he wanted to be a part of his family. And because... God and man are separated by sin, that he had made it very clear without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. God had set that straight. That's the only way that somebody could be forgiven. So it was the principle of the law of the Old Testament, life for life. So because there was the life penalty that was deserved, somebody had to pay that penalty. And because he had no penalty to pay for his own sin, since he was sinless, being God, he could make his death account for others. So that's why he had to pay that penalty. And he would call it his time. He knew it was to come. And he would say, my time has not yet come. My time for what? My time for being crucified, knowing that that was the ultimate end of why he even came to earth. So it was his intention all along to come to this moment. Though even, many of you know the story in scripture beforehand, the brutality and what it meant, not just on earth, but to be separated from his father was so gripping to him that before this happened, just days before it happened, 
Uh, he goes before God, the Father, and he begs and says, is there any other way? I don't want this to happen, but nevertheless, your will be done. So that's why he did it, to, to pay for the sins of those of us that would be in his family. All right, second part of your question. Uh, the second part is, uh, uh, since God has created the, the whole universe in six days and had the Sabbath on seven days, so he created mankind, birds, animals, insects, sea creatures, and uh, uh, a lot of them which we do not know. Since he gave these exemplary things to show to the mankind, did he also has shown something to the other creature for his, uh, for his uh, himself and his uh, 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 righteousness and he, himself. Did he did he show what now? The last thing did he show what? The the similar type of example of resurrection, what he has shown to the mankind. Did he show to uh, some other creature something like that? Are you talking about the other creatures on Earth? Yes. Yeah, well, we think that the only uh, creation that he has created that has the intellectual capacity to even recognize, know, and understand, no, there would be no understanding of that in that regard. However, it's interesting you bring up what you bring because it says all creation groans at the sin because when sin came to the earth, it literally impacted all of creation. And so there's the figurative term that the... the inanimate things of this earth, they groan, meaning that they carry the consequences. And then it says that they look forward to, not meaning that they can rationally think, but there's a sense in which they're waiting for the ultimate renewal of all things when Jesus comes back that renews all things, including what they are in the creation. So in that sense, yes, but not in an intellectual capacity where they could know. Mm -mm. Good question. Let's go to the, the board. Let's see what another question. Uh, how do you know Jesus is real? You don't know Jesus is real. Not know in a perfect sense. Meaning, how do you prove? I don't think you prove Jesus is real. How do I know that Jesus is real? I can't do anything perfectly. And you can't either, according to the Bible, if the Bible is accurate. Because we're broken people... We can do nothing perfectly. I cannot have perfect assurance of anything. Not perfect. It may be so strong that I don't have any doubts and I'm just fine and I'm never going to have a concern. I just, I believe it so. You mean perfect? There's never been a time that a thought would come in. What if I, what? No, that's, nobody has anything perfect. And so in that sense, we don't know absolutely that he's real. But relative Yes, we have a knowledge that gives us such certainty that people will go literally to their death because they believe it so much. That's what happened to the disciples. It's one of the strong merits to believe that this Christianity must have been viewed real by them. The fact that they, if, if, if Jesus hadn't raised from the dead, oh my goodness. First of all, they were all running scared until he did rise from the dead. Once that happened, boy, they said, we'll go to our death. And history tells us, Secular history, most of them, if not all of them, died because of their faith. Well, that's, that's a, a strong knowing. I, I know so strong. I have to tell you a quick story. I had a, a man who was a, a Mormon who came to me, uh, came to our church. Somebody invited him, and he had the lineage 
into the original family of Mormonism. So uh, Joseph family. I mean, this guy was inside, inside, inside. He'd done his two years of service overseas. He'd done everything. I mean, big, 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 big. And somebody's challenged him to come to church. And he came to Perimeter. And afterwards, he came down and he said to me, he said, I heard something that I've never heard in all my years of my religion. I said, what's that? I heard grace. I don't know grace. That's new. That's, we don't believe. What I'm, we don't have grace so much. It's, it's, you have to do certain things. And that, that really kind of hit me, this grace stuff. And I said, would you like to have lunch for a period of weeks? So at least one week and talk about it. I said, sure. And we ended up meeting each week. Well, when we first met, the first week after we started, he looked at me and he said, how do I know that this thing you're talking about is real and that what I've believed with all of my heart is not real? How do I know that? And I said, I don't know, but you'll know when you know. <laughs> well, that made him mad. He said, that's the dumbest. What do you mean I'll know? I, I said, you'll know when you know. He said, that's not good enough for me. The next week we meet. And he was very interested in the investigation. So we meet for the next week. And he's shown a lot of enthusiasm in, in what he's learning. But he looks at me and he says, look, I'm serious. I've got to have an answer to my question. How do I know? I've been so committed to this with all of my life. And if that means it's all wrong all of my life, I've got to know this is real. How do I know? And I said, I don't know, but you'll know when you know. And he literally started weeping, big old strong guy. He started weeping. He says, you don't get this. This is my life. I've got to know. And you can't tell me how to know. And I said, no, but you will know when you know. We got to the fourth week. We went through the third, just what we finished today. And I said, here's what I'd encourage you to do. I'd encourage you to, to think about you know, whether this is really real or not. If you believe it is, to start making overtures to God to impact your life and to change you and so forth. We met the fourth week and afterwards I said, hey, let's give it, let's meet back together. Let's see me meet after this fourth week. We finished now and, and let's just see what happens and, it, it, you know. So the next week we got together and when we got together, he looked at me and he said, Randy, I've become a Christian. I said, tell me about it. He says, it's amazing. God's come into my heart. I, I I mean, it's, I'm a different, and he started talking about what had happened in his life. And I said, I'm very curious. How do you know that happened? He said, I don't know, but I know. And he never thought about what he was saying. He said, I don't know, but I know. And I said, huh, huh? He went, oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You know, but you know. You see, there's a verse in Scripture in Romans 8, 16. It says, for God's spirit bears witness with man's spirit that he's a child of God. I mean, this thing really is godish. It's not just manish. Let's figure out a man's. This is God. If God is God, and he says, I got a spirit, and I'll let the spirit bear witness with your spirit to give you the, the knowledge, the know that you are, then that's what we think happens. And that's why I think so many people find their assurance so strong. But I will say this. Do not be misled. It's not, all right, I, I give my heart to the Lord, and we're going to talk about what that means next week. This is kind of the week we bring it together next week. But when we do that, that does not mean there's this, oh, I just so know. I'll explain that next week, okay? All right, right here, question. So this kind of stems off uh, Cash's question. Um, so if 
we are the only like creatures on earth that understand that there is a sort of higher power or God. Um, and we think all of earth Christians think that all of the creatures don't understand that then how do we know or how do Christians know that they are perceiving the way that God in heaven is the way that it's described to be to Christians. Yeah, how do we know that we really are accurate at the way, we're, is that what you're saying? How do we know we're accurate about what God has said and what God has done and so forth? Well, that's actually, uh, you got to put the word faith in there. Faith is not going to be excised from this exercise. That's why you call all religion faith. They're faiths. That means there's a trust in something. What you have to do is say, how do I know then I want to know what is my belief in terms of the accuracy of the data, all right? For instance, um, but one of the things I was going to mention there is that, you know, people who say, um, well, you got, um, if you want to have a, a healthy body, then what you do is you, you eat high proteins and low carbs, and somebody else says, well, I think it's all about eating a lot of the good fats and that you do so-and-so. And somebody else says, well, I think you do this. And everybody's got their different view of what really is the healthy diet. So everybody seems to disagree to a fairly large degree of what, what really is the right diet. What's the best diet? Well, somebody could hear that and go, there's so many diets. Everybody's done it. Nobody seems to agree, so I don't even think it matters. So I'm going to just eat sugar all the time because I don't think it really matters. You go, no, 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 no. What I say is that, and this is how I think answers your question, it's we look at the data of information that we have, and we use the intellect that we have and what we believe, the heart that we have, and we say, what do I think is the most likely best diet? And if I think this is the best diet, I'm going to go and hold to that diet. However, I'm going to hold on to it and say, I'm listening. You show me something that convinces me that this one is a little stronger diet, then I'm going to move over toward this a little bit more. And then I'm going to be open. If something happens, I might move a little more over to this one a little bit more. But I want to make sure that I am following what I believe is the most accurate and best approach. And I think that's the way you and I have to go about it. And then embrace. Now, I would say this. As we embrace... Okay, I think this is it. Let me embrace. Does it really do what Christianity says it will do? And I always want Christians to know, of people that are new in the faith, Christianity never says, come to me and I will make life good in the sense of circumstantial good life. Never does he promise that. What he promises is, I will give you a good heart and I will give you a changed life where you can have joy and stuff like that. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You want to go further? Um, so off of that, um, would you say that it's accurate that you think Christianity is, quote, the best diet? Is that accurate? Yeah. Okay. Uh, good way so, of putting it. I think just, it's the best okay. diet. Yeah. I think it's the best um, diet. In so fact, I'm going to go that, so far. You... Of course, Christianity will go so far and say it's the only diet that works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you look at other religions and compare it to Christianity, and I know you were comparing it to other diets like sugar, but let's say that they're um, more so like different forms of this Christianity diet where it either has, is lacking something, yeah. wherever. Um, how do you know that Christianity is the one out of so many like hundreds of religions, right? All right. Well, you just asked the question that I missed, so I'm going to go over it as my last question, okay? 
take your materials and I'm going to, what about all the other religions? And I'll just walk you through this. This is your little guide to help you. If you choose, you would like to, to work to finding the answer to that question. I think you got to look, what are my options? So three options, none are correct. There's no way to God. All are correct. Yet they do contradict each other, but they're all correct. Or only one is correct. So there's the, there we have to say those are the three options that we have to land on one of the three. Recommendations for investigation. Here are my recommendations for how you investigate all the other religions. Number one, pick the religions and their leaders which you think have the most merit. There's no culture without religion. So look at the world religions and say which ones do you think have the most merit. I put four that are typically put in the top of the list that are most noted and followed, okay? So there may be some others under there you want to put on, on a list. Number two, pick a handful of the most critical evaluative issues and do a comparative study. My recommendation is to take teachings, moral life, miracles, prophetic power, and present status, and, those, and look at those with each. If you turn it over, it says the religions and their leaders. And I put the four there and a few little notes about each one that just tell you who the leader is, when uh, that religion, uh, when that person lived, uh, where it originated, uh, how large the following is today, and so forth. And you can look at those four side by side by side. Then, there's a note about Hinduism, by the way, but if you go to the very last, last it says areas of contrast. So if you take the teaching, first of all, these are the five categories. You look at Confucius, what are his teachings, Buddha, Muhammad, and Jesus. And you can see the four different. And then I would just look up and read about those four. What is the merit? Why does that religion say it's such a strong um, teaching? Then the moral life. Look at the leader's moral life. And this is interesting, by the way. Look what I have under Muhammad. Both Confucius and, Bo and Buddha you know, good life, not perfect, didn't claim to be perfect. Muhammad, many, many, many moral struggles. Violated his own, own teaching, and one being the area of uh, exceeding the number of wives. I think he had 13 of them. Uh, changed his own teaching midstream, literally. I mean, I, I was talking to a driver when I was in Iraq, and I said, oh, I'm curious, or in Iran. I said, uh, why is it that, you know, some people feel one, some people feel the other about uh, me being here and whatever and so forth. And they said, oh, you know, we kind of have an Old and new, new Testament. This is probably not accurate from what I understand from some deep, you know, um, holders of the Islam faith. But felt that Muhammad really uh, taught one way in the first half of his life and then uh, taught uh, to be a jihadist toward the end of his life. And so some hold to their Old Testament, some hold to the New Testament. And, uh, but they have diff two different views, and some people want to hold this, they hold one, and this is what this driver told me. He said they want to hold the other, they hold the other, and they can actually find Muhammad teaching whatever they particularly want to believe. Now, I'm not sure that's accurate, but that was what he told me. Uh, Jesus claimed to be perfect. Then you look at miracles, none by any of the others but Jesus, and then prophetic power. Uh, there are a few noted miracles that are in history that uh, are supernatural by Muhammad, but only a very, very small handful where Jesus, it was a constant part of his. Present status, very important. Only Jesus claimed to be alive, overcoming death. Muhammad, his uh, body buried in Saudi Arabia, and so the others don't have the, uh, the resurrection factor. But those would be the issues that I would look at in terms of, of determining. And, and then I would say, 
hey, the one that I think has most merit, I'm going to look into it and see if it has impact on my life. If it doesn't, then that's not what you're looking for. Okay? I think our time is, is up. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to suggest something that was not planned. And um, I, uh, I left it down there. You see the little green cards? These little cards, certainly turn them in as you leave out there and lay them on the table or whatever. Uh, you can put your information. If you want us to contact you and, and uh, please keep it confidential or whatever, you can ask any requests. But I'm going to do one thing that uh, this card was not really designed for. I would like to offer to anybody who is going through next week and at the end of next week would say, I would love a little roundtable discussion with you, Randy. I'd love to sit down kind of on a personal basis and be able to really interact and talk. This is not for anybody who says, I am a Christian, but I'd like to ask questions and talk. You're saying, as far as I can tell, I'm not a Christian. Uh, you've, by that time, you've heard what, everything I say next week, which is what does Jesus say is required to have eternal life. And now I really want to sit around and have a, a more informal opportunity to talk. And what I would like to do is maybe take an hour, even if we, if we need an hour, and maybe I'll just pick the time at 5 o'clock. I don't have a place because I just came up with the idea this morning. But, but uh, we'll find a place here in the church at 5 o'clock on Sunday evening uh, of next week. So we will have finished our investigative form. And if we have three, if we have 30, it doesn't matter. We'll just sit around and we'll interact on the issues and really have a really good time to talk about it more on a personal basis. So if you're interested in doing that, what you would do is just say yes, all right? Just say yes. And uh, you don't put no if you don't want to do it. <laughs> just turn them in if it's yes, okay? And then we'll know the number of people and what size room and, and how we want to do that, okay? That sound good? Well, again, thank you for being a part of this. I'll close in prayer and let you be dismissed. I hope this has been beneficial to give you just some insights into the Christian faith and maybe it's helping you along in your own investigation. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time here. We're grateful for the privilege to be able to, to uh, just investigate. And uh, Lord, I, I know as a Christian, I, I'm so convinced you're who you claim to be. Uh, but Lord, you show these people, if you are, make it known. And uh, let them find what so many of us have found in you. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.